Money. It affects our everyday life. But how do we make more of it? Manage it. And make sure we make the most of our money. Welcome to Money Mindful, a podcast to teach and support you as you learn to manage your money. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to the Money Mindful podcast. I am your host, Megan. As always, I have an episode packed full of great content that will help you move forward with managing your money and making more. This month in book club, we are reading The Millionaire Teacher, The Nine Rules of Wealth You Should Have Learned in School by Andrew Hallam. I came across this book after listening to the Canadian podcast, Mo Money, hosted by Jessica Morehouse. She interviewed Andrew Hallam and after listening to what he had to say, I was compelled to buy his book and I'm so glad I did. As a former school teacher, of course, I was attracted to the title, Millionaire Teacher. How could I say no to a title like that? It was certainly attention grabbing for me, but it was Andrew's simple teachings about investing that kept me hooked. In the book, Andrew shares the nine rules of wealth he follows himself, which led him to become a debt-free millionaire in his 30s. Yeah, that's right. You heard me correctly. Debt-free and a millionaire in his 30s. Grab a notepad and pen and pay attention, ladies. I think there is a lot that we can learn from Andrew today. I have recommended his book too many times to mention, so I am absolutely thrilled to have him on the show. Andrew, welcome. Thank you so much, Megan. I love the way you open it, welcoming beautiful people. We love that. We think it's great. Oh, well, they are, Andrew. All the listeners who listen to this show, they really are beautiful people. And most of them women, and there are some men listening. Hello, men. We love you too. But of (laughs) course, I'm, I'm all about my ladies. So I'm so pleased to have you here so my listeners can hear from you firsthand. I have read many books on finance and money management, but I found yours to be the most instrumental in moving me forward to invest in the share market. You must hear this kind of thing all the time, but I have to tell you that you have had a really positive impact on my life, Andrew. So I've got to start by saying a heartfelt thank you. Uh, And I'm really excited and pleased to have you here sharing your expertise and wisdom on the show today. So perhaps we could start with a little introduction. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? What do you do? What do I do? Well, now I guess I can, I could start by saying that I was trained to be a school teacher and I was inspired by a millionaire who was built a million dollar portfolio on a mechanic salary really through a combination of real estate and uh and the share markets and he told me that if i became financially literate that i wouldn't have to work as hard as other people i could save less than other people thereby allowing me to spend more than other people and have more money it just seemed like this plus 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 scenario so i started to learn about investing and by the time i was i guess early 30s i'd read um, I think I'd read more than well, 450 personal finance books and 
I used to, I was an evangelist. So I got a job as a school teacher and uh, I was teaching the public system in Canada. And we all had what we call defined benefit pensions. So essentially government pensions at the end of the day, it's like a, the ultimate unicorn because they're going the way of the, uh, the brontosaurus now, but not in Canada, at least the defined benefit pensions. But of course, corporate pensions, as we both know in Australia and Canada are nowhere near as prolific as they were for our parents, for example. It's just not as common. So that's what we're calling them unicorns just for a joke. But I ended up moving to Singapore and I got a job at a private school. And people there were not contributing to a defined benefit pension. There was no way that they were, you know, they weren't giving the government money in exchange for, um, or at least a percentage of our salary wasn't going towards what would effectively be monthly guaranteed cash payouts upon retirement. So they were on their own. And while I was learning to be a teacher, I guess, while I was going through that educational process and while I was reading those finance books, I guess I started two careers concurrently. One was I was teaching high school English, middle school, then high school English, and uh, which morphed into also teaching personal finance. But I was writing for finance magazines as well. So I was writing for a Canadian newspaper, writing a, a column there. And, and I started giving books away that I would find easy to understand I started giving them out to my colleagues because they weren't contributing to like there's no superannuation for Australians living for example in Singapore and working there there's nothing for them so they either save and invest on their own or they don't and many of them don't save at all and so this frightened me and then when I saw how many of them were investing when they did invest they would be investing with financial service companies whereby the fees were really high I realized, wow, I've got to do something to try to help these people. So I started to give away copies of different books that I had read that I thought were really simple about stock market investing. And I would buy them. I'd spent, I'd spent a few thousand dollars buying dozens of books, putting out a, a big email at work saying, come and get one. I've got 12 titles here. They're really great. Um, I think you'll like them. They're simple. They're easy to understand. Come and pick them up. And people did. They scooped them up. And... Um, I found that perhaps a month and a half later, I said, hey, anyone who's read your book, let's do like a giant book club talk thing. Let's do a giant book club meeting and share what we've learned. And so they all came. Um, the fundamental premise in these books is, is fairly timeless. It's the same premise that's really in my book. But I found that people didn't understand the concept. So at first they said they did. That they, how's everybody doing? Do you understand the concepts in this book? Oh, yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it. And then I guess based on my background as a teacher, I thought, okay, wait a second. We don't learn this in school. So, so many of these concepts will be fairly foreign to everybody. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people shouldn't feel intimidated by personal finance. It's that the average college-educated adult knows barely more than an eighth-grade kid. You know, it's, it's just we don't learn this in high school typically, and then we don't end up learning this in college and then we get into a pattern of, of busyness and we don't end up then educating ourselves. And so I spoke to my editor at Money Sense Magazine, magazine that I was writing for, and I said, Ian, I'm kind of frustrated. I've spent a few thousand dollars giving out these books and I know they didn't get it. People didn't understand these concepts. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm, I feel like an idiot. And, and he said, well, Andrew, there's only really one thing to do and that's to write your own book. And and run it past, run chapters by people who have never read a finance book before in their lives. 
run chapters past people that had to have that self-admittedly say they have no understanding of the stock market and if they can understand your book chapter by chapter obviously you work it and you tweak it um if they can understand it then then perhaps then you've done a good job with it you know you've done a service to the uh to the general public so so that was it that was sort of the the story behind millionaire teacher and how i started and i began investing when i was 19 so that mechanic really inspired me and i was putting away money every single month from that point forward and then of course as my salary increased the amount of money that i was able to invest ended up increasing and my wife and i decided in 2014 to take a, a year off so we were teaching at singapore american school where she was teaching high school spanish and i was teaching high school english and personal finance and we thought we'd take one year and one year led to two which has led to six and we were just really enjoying um, traveling. So we do loads of travel. Um, sometimes we travel, we have a tandem bicycle. And so we have some panniers and we travel throughout Europe on that and Cuba and Southeast Asia. Um, sometimes we're backpacking. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, we bought, a, uh, we bought like a camper van. And we spent 17 months down in Mexico and Central America. And in the meantime, what ends up often happening is I get requests to give talks. And uh, you met my wife, Pelle. She's like the ultimate organizer. I'm fairly useless. Um, she sorts it all out and she will corral a series of talks into, say, a five week period. So maybe we'll do like the Middle East and we'll put all the Middle East requests and we'll sort of fit them into about a five week span. And then we'll go and hit the Middle East hard and I give a series of talks. Uh, and then sometimes we might end up attaching some Asian talks to that. But I've done a lot of it, Megan. Like uh, I know in 2017, uh, I said yes to everything. And in a six month period, I did 90 investment talks in 13 different countries. Whoa, wow. Yeah. <laughs> And it was fun. It was fun because we, you know, we learned so much about, um, I mean, I, I ended up going to Tanzania, Ethiopia, Kenya, speaking about this, um, Dubai, Bahrain, Egypt, Oman, Thailand, and Indonesia, with the Bali of all places. We were asked by an international school to come to Bali so I could teach the teachers about this stuff. It was just so much fun meeting have so many new friends along the way. Uh, Andrew, I am getting chills. Like I'm just, you guys can't see us, but Andrew and I are on zoom and we can, we're, we're looking at each other and I just have the biggest grin on my face because to me, what really stood out about what you said there is first of all, this just happened by chance because you happened to know a mechanic who exposed you to this and then look at this life that you live now just from making a few simple moves to do with your finances. Now you're living this incredible dream life that I'm sure there's many people listening going, holy moly, that sounds incredible. What sp spurs me forward about continuing with this podcast is that I want the women who listen to this to hear that, oh my gosh, this is possible. You know, mm -hmm. what you're telling us now is, is really possible. It's not some fantasy rainbows and daisies life like this is something that is literally possible to create if you just learn how right yeah, yeah. you know fun fun little side story I, I guess i called that mechanic on the phone 
from Singapore and I hadn't chatted with him for, oh, 10, 15 years, probably 15 years. And I, I called and I said, uh, and he was pretty, he's a gruff guy. You know, he was, he was rough and gruff and he, uh, he's like, who is this? And I, and I told him and then he says, oh yeah, you. Uh, and I said, Hey, look, I've got to, I got to tell you something. Thanks to you. There are 120 families in Cambodia who have access to fresh water, who did not have access to fresh water before. And if I hadn't have met you, this wouldn't have happened. I would not have been able to donate the monies to have these wells, freshwater wells built for these families. And it was so cool because he went pretty quiet on the other end. And I could hear in his voice this little quiver. Like I explained, I went back and I explained the whole story. And I, and I gave him all the credit in the world for being the first person to sit me down and say, look, I'm going to give you the education that you should have had in school. And uh, that was such a cool thing to share with him. And the way he emotionally took that on was just so, um, that gave me goosebumps. Uh, I love that so much. And I'm so glad that the listeners can hear this because I think this is a myth that we need to dispel in society. There's so much negativity towards people with money. It's like money's the root of all evil or all the rich people, uh, you know, horrible, mean people or something like this. And it's, it's just simply not true. Like if you're a kind and generous person without money, when you have more money, you are still going to be a kind and generous person. Money doesn't, I mean, yeah, of course it changes some things about you because, you know, you might be able to drive a nicer car or it doesn't change who you are inside. You're still the same person. It just amplifies things. And if you're already someone who's selfish and unkind, if you have more money, you're probably still going to be selfish and unkind. Money is not connected to how you behave in the world. So I love this story because it's an example that, you know, this is what you can do when you get savvy with your money. You can actually have such a positive impact on not just yourself, but others. So thank you for sharing that. I absolutely love that story. I don't even think we need to have a lot of money to be able to to give. I mean, some of the most giving people we know too are people that sometimes they have the least, but that act of giving feels better than the act of spending and behavioral studies suggest that it increases our levels of happiness far more so than actually spending things on ourselves. So yeah, it's a, it's one of the things too, when you asked me about, you said, well, this is, this is something everyday people can do. You, you were implying that they can. And yeah, they absolutely can. But we have to think a little bit differently. We have to shift our paradigm a bit and recognize that we are in a, a spender's culture. We're in a culture where people will acquire things now, pay for them later. We spend probably too much money on things that really don't enhance our levels of happiness or well-being. It's interesting looking at happiness studies. And there's a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman. He won a Nobel Prize in behavioral economics, and he looked at uh, two levels of, of happiness. One is called reflective happiness, and then the other is called experiential happiness. And he said that the reflective happiness isn't really real. It's just what's verbalized. So you can say to somebody, how do you feel driving that brand new BMW? Uh, are you happier driving that than driving a 10-year-old Honda? And the person will say, 
yes, definitely. But some fascinating, fascinating studies have been done on the experiential happiness component, where a study at Michigan State University, which was replicated in Germany, where they asked people about all sorts of different questions, like any great experiment would. They asked the subjects all kinds of questions, so they don't really know what it is they're looking for. But one of those questions related to how they felt about the last time they drove their car, and how did they actually feel, how much did they enjoy it. And they had previously asked all of the subjects to identify what kind of vehicle they have. And what they found was experiential happiness isn't any better or higher with people driving a, a brand new Mercedes-Benz versus a, a 15-year-old Toyota. There's a sugar fix associated with purchasing a brand new car. And then it wears off. It's just like buying the, the, the latest iPhone after a really short period of time. It's just another phone. And, and things like automobiles, because they're massive depreciating assets, are wealth destroyers. But we've, we've, we live in a culture where the norm isn't exactly healthy. So we're often trying to keep up with the Joneses and we're buying the latest and the greatest. And we don't even know that we're doing it. And if it doesn't enhance our levels of happiness, then why bother going into debt to acquire these things when, on the flip side, if we have, we're able to take that money and invest that money, we could end up purchasing things that actually do augment our levels of happiness or contentment, like purchasing time. And I guess for Pelly and for me, that's really what we ended up purchasing. We purchased time together, where we can spend time traveling the world, um, enjoying new experiences, and happiness studies do point to experiences, new experiences, augmenting our levels of happiness. And you don't have to like travel the world for that. It could just be you know, learning to play the guitar. But you need time to do that, to set that time aside and say, I'm not going to chase Mr. and Mrs. Jones and their acquisitions. I'm going to live a life that's a bit more purposefully defined, I think, a little bit more deliberate. Um, and when doing so, it frees up money that you didn't know you would have had to invest small amounts into what we'll talk about in a few minutes here with the shares market and eventually end up with money. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you, at the start of the book, you described this frugal lifestyle that you had uh, in your youth. And I've got to be honest and say that does not appeal to me in the slightest. In fact, if it was cold at home, for sure, yeah, I'll put an extra jumper on, but I'm turning the heater on, Andrew. <laughs> There's not a doubt about it. However, I think you make such an important point about the car. Uh, we drive a 2005 Subaru Forester and, you know, I mean, we're doing all right. My partner is a doctor, you know, we have a good income. But for us, it's, I mean, yeah, sure, wouldn't that be nice to have a luxury car? But actually, I would much rather be able to just spend the money outright. Like we bought that car outright years ago, mm. secondhand, and we don't have any car payments but we can afford to do things like we pay a lawnmower guy and where now that I'm working again, we're about to get a cleaner again because on Saturdays, we don't want to spend Saturday morning mowing the lawn and cleaning the house. We want to spend Saturday morning out with the kids on a bushwalk because we've got lots of bushwalks around our area. And I think that's an excellent example that time is 
the most precious asset we have. We can't get time back, but that's one thing that money can buy. It can buy us time. And I love that you have brought that up. It's great. I've got all these notes here and I really love it when I don't need to use them because every all the points that I've put down here, you just keep coming up with already so (laughs) which is which is terrific it it shows that we are um on the same page okay so let's change this up a little bit one of the reasons i speak so highly of your book millionaire teacher is because i think one of the biggest roadblocks for many people who have an idea that they would like to invest is that they actually have no idea how to do it or their perception of what investing in the share market is, is not, is not accurate in the sense that there's ways to invest in the share market that I think some people just don't even realize is available to them. And what I would love to talk about now is, can you give us just a simple rundown of how the share market works. And by the way, I've got to say before you do, I love your analogy, your Willy Wonka analogy. I'm showing my age here, but one of my favorite movies as a kid. And um, you give this beautiful uh, analogy of how the share market works using Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Um, you're not required to give that example here, but I would love it if you um, if you could just give an overview how does the stock market work? Why do prices go up? Well, let's take an example of a single business. Let's take an ample example of a business like Apple. So everybody's really familiar with Apple. Um, so Apple produces phones, big part of their market, uh, among other things, computers, phones. Now, when Apple itself makes money as a business, it earns what I call business profits. So they're not, we're not talking stock market right now. I want you to think of Apple as a business. So Apple produces the phone, Apple sells the phone, gets revenue, and that's counting as essentially business income for the company. So when companies often, when they first start out, they issue shares. And it's like an invitation to own a piece of that company and to ride on with the fortunes or misfortunes of that business. So Apple has issued plenty of shares. We can buy shares in Apple stock. Apple stock doesn't go necessarily long-term up and down on a whim. Short-term, yes. Short-term, the stock market is what we call a popularity contest. It's manic depressive. It's incredibly whimsical. It goes up and down, and the shares of Apple will go up and down. However, long-term, the shares of Apple in the future are directly aligned with the actual business profits per share. So the business profits. So that share price of Apple has increased dramatically over the last 15 years because Apple's business profits have risen dramatically over those 15 years. So it's a one-to-one type of correlation. The risky part is when you choose to put money in a single stock. Like Apple, even Apple, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. It's one of the most loved companies in the world. However, let's say Samsung comes out with a phone that absolutely blows away anything Apple has ever created. Well, people are going to start buying more Samsung phones than Apple phones. Let's say an upstart computer company produced something better than any laptop 
Apple has ever produced. Likewise, Apple is going to start losing market share in the laptop department. And so as a result of that, there's no single company that is an indestructible iceberg. Anything can start to happen whereby the business profits of that company end up declining. So we've had historically loads of big businesses that have gone through exactly the same thing. So to put your money in a single business, even in three or four businesses that you think are going to do well, is a risky endeavor because those businesses could end up going bankrupt or they could end up just just sort of slipping into anonymity if competition ends up eroding the business profit potential going forward. So instead of buying one business or handpicking four businesses, which requires all kinds of crazy research, staying on top of the business and what's happening within the business, and even then, you really have no control over the things that you have no control over, better than buying a single company is to buy them all. So in Australia, for example, you could buy what's called an Australian stock market index. When you buy an Australian stock market index, your money is getting divvied up into virtually every single share in the Australian stock market. Shares that you might deem to be, well, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. But the really freaky thing about this is often the shares that we think are going to do terribly often end up doing really, really well. And the shares that we often think are going to do really well end up doing terribly. It's a really tough game to predict. So when we end up owning all of the shares in the Australian market, then our profits rise in conjunction with the Australian market plus the dividends that those businesses end up throwing off. So you have on the flip side how most people invest is actually not through an index fund that would own all of the shares in the Australian market. Most people would go with a financial services company, a mutual fund company, also known as a unit trust company, and they would buy an actively managed unit trust. And so here's how it differs to an index. An Australian index, if you purchase it, your money is virtually divvied up into every single share on the Australian market. When you go with an actively managed unit trust, you're putting your money with a fund manager and he or she is going to be purchasing the stocks, the shares that he or she thinks are going to do well in the future. And so the people who own the fund or buy the fund are supposedly able to benefit from that person's savvy purchasing. Unfortunately, about 90% of actively managed unit trusts or actively managed mutual funds will underperform a simple low-cost stock market index. Okay, this is why I bang on about index funds whenever I'm talking about shares on the podcast. But let's delve into this a little bit further, Andrew. Can you take us through a bit more about why are index funds good to invest in in the sense of fees? Can you explain that? And then also, can we talk a little bit more detail about why they outperform the managed funds? And because yeah, sometimes on yeah. yeah, sometimes on paper it doesn't look like they outperform if you're looking at a period of time. But if you could 
explain that in more detail because I really want the women listening today to walk away understanding exactly what an index fund is and why they may be a really good investment. Well, it's good to to understand the index. It's good to know the the its opposite. First of all, like you need that mirror reflection to understand what an index is. Sometimes it's best to know um, how to compare it or a comparison between that and an actively managed fund. So let's assume that uh, Megan, you are working for Vanguard Australia, and your job is to manage an index fund. Then your friend Michelle, she works for say fidelity giant mutual fund company her job is to manage a australian stock market fund through active trading buying and selling buying and selling now when i speak to my students about this i would say okay intuitively what makes sense do we go with megan's index fund whereby your money gets divvied up into virtually every share in the australian market and megan does nothing she just she could literally just lay in a hammock all day and drink Cosmos. She's just set up a computer such that when we buy Megan's Australian shares index fund, your money gets divvied up into every single share in the market, and Megan does no trading. Because she does no trading, fees are exceptionally low on the fund itself because we don't have to pay her much. <laughs> she doesn't. She is. She's not doing much of anything. We don't have to pay for research. We don't have to pay for trading costs. So a fund would have a trading cost internally that you'll never see every time it makes a trade when it buys and sells. Also, if the fund company is a basically a nonprofit like Vanguard, Vanguard's run much like a co-op. And so any profits that the company make go directly into reducing the fees of the product over time. So if you invest with Megan's index fund, cost, total costs could be as low as 0.1% per year. On the flip side, if you go with Michelle's actively managed fund, now we have to pay Michelle a higher, a higher salary, right? We also have to pay trading fees. That's internal. You don't see that happening, but Michelle's buying and selling shares within that fund. Also, that's not a nonprofit enterprise. Fidelity or any of these mutual fund companies, they need to generate a profit. So what they do is they skim off the investor's total proceeds. So you pay a fee to invest in that product. And in Australia, the average mutual fund fees about 2% per year. So if I invest with Megan's index, I might pay about 0.1% per year. So let me give you an idea of what that means because it doesn't sound like it's that much. So, so what? So I go with an index, I pay 0.1, and I go with an active managed fund, and I pay 2%. One thing also I should add is that many people, when asked the question, what makes more sense to go with Megan, whereby you own the good, the bad, the downright ugly in the index, you just own everything, or to go with Michelle, who's actively trading a different fund, getting in and out, watching the economy, looking at political environments, looking at earnings forecasts for businesses, trading in and out, looking at how this might, how COVID-19 might affect the economy. When you ask people what makes more sense to go with the active managed product or to go with the index fund, most people intuitively will say, well, to go with the active managed product, because this is a person who's going to be diving in and out of bad scenarios. However, 
what people don't understand, and this is based on, this is really cool if you're a super geek like me, uh, a, a guy named William F. Sharp, he's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, wrote a piece called The Arithmetic of Active Management. And what that suggests is this. All of the monies that's in the Australian market, it would be as a result of money that's in Australian hedge funds, Australian pension funds, Australian actively managed funds, maybe your, your brother-in-law who buys individual shares, maybe the guy down the street who has a, a day trading company. All the money that's in the Australian market is, as a, is a result of the investments made by these entities, institutional bank money. And here's what's really cool. When the market, let's say the Australian shares market, earns a return of 8% in a given year, then we know that the aggregate return of all of the monies that's been invested in that market made 8% because they are the market. So if the Australian shares market makes 8%, the Australian index will make 8% minus 0.1% fee. So they'll earn about a 7.9% return. The aggregate return of all the professional money that's in the market, all of the actively managed mutual funds, the hedge funds, the pension funds, the institutional traders, the day traders, your cousin Toby, the aggregate return on their funds or on that money invested would also be 8% in a year when the Australian market made 8% because they are that group from which we have gathered the data. They constitute the entire market. Now, some of them would have earned more than 8%. Some of them would have learned less than 8%, but when we average it together, we find that professionals would have averaged, and they do, this is a statistical reality, they average the return of the market itself. That's before fees, however. Now deduct a 2% fee. So now, Michelle's actively managed fund, Michelle has a high salary, she works for a firm, let's say, Fidelity, whereby um, the share owners of Fidelity want some part of the business profits. So you as the investor, when you're investing in that fund, are paying fees. And I'm just going to give you an idea of the difference a 2% fee makes. If you had invested a flat $10,000 and you left it for, let's say, a 40-year duration. So, okay, you're 20 years old, you put in 10,000 at age 60, you, you pull it out. If you earned a 6% return, that would $10,000 would grow to $102,000. But if you paid 2% less in fees, you wouldn't have earned a 6% return. In that case, you would have earned an 8% return. Now, 2% doesn't sound like much, but the difference between 6% and 8%, that 2% difference is huge. That $10,000 at 6% over 40 years would grow to $102,000. At 8%, remember it's only two percentage points more, it grows to $217,000. So this is why it makes no sense to go with an actively managed product. Because on aggregate, actively managed products will earn the market's return. But then, of course, there are the fees associated with them. Sometimes what you'll find is, of course, if you were asking me, hey, do your best to sell actively managed funds to some friends of mine. I would say, okay, if that were my job and I had to do that. And they said to me, hey, I read this book on index funds and it says they're better. What I would do is if I had to try and sell them on the concept of actively managed funds, 
I would find funds with five or six or three-year track records or 10-year track records that have actually beaten the Australian shares stock market index. And I can find them. I can actually go through and cherry pick and I can find them. And then I would try to sell them. If I were the person trying to sell them to a, to a, to a client, if you put me in the position where that had to be my job, you twisted an arm behind my back and I said, uncle, uncle, okay, I don't want to do it, but I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> that would be the strategy that they would use on you. So if you walk into a financial services company, they don't want you buying indexes because indexes aren't profitable for the financial services company. They want you buying the actively managed products. And the interesting thing about this, there's a concept called reversion to the mean. Typically, a fund that outperforms the index during one time period, not only does it typically go on to underperform during the following time period, but it goes on to underperform the average actively managed fund as well. So not only does it usually underperform the index, it usually goes on to underperform the typical actively managed fund too. So the worst thing we can do is actually pick funds based on their track records, but that's what most investors do. Whoa, that was a mouthful. Okay, so I'm just going to break that down to make sure I've understood all of this and getting this clear. So basically, okay, we don't want to bad mouth financial advisors because I'm, I like to think of people in general do the right thing. But what I've heard you say there is a fund manager or a financial advisor who sells funds, they also need to live and make money. And so to do that, there is uh, a cost involved with with those funds because they're buying and selling shares actively, which does cost money. You have to pay money to buy and sell shares. And so they pay the money to buy and sell them. And then also they have a fee on top of that to pay the people who are doing this, which they get paid very well, I, I, uh, I've heard. Whereas with an index fund, they're, you're not, they're not actively buying and selling shares. They're only ever buying or selling just to stay in line with the indice that it's following, right? Correct. Yeah. And so in that sense, there's not all these additional fees on top and that's why they're cheaper. And in the long run, you've just told us that a simple 2% difference in a fee can be a difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on how much we've invested. And so that's the really important takeaway to get gain from this is that we, we seek out professional help because we think, oh, I don't know how to do this. This is all too hard. I'm going to get a financial advisor to tell me what to do. And then the financial advisor advises you to buy a particular product. And it's not necessarily a bad, a bad product, but the fees on top of it is what's going to cost you the money in the long run. And ladies, I have to tell you that I am not a unicorn, okay? I didn't study economics at university. I, uh, my maths is probably not really that great, if I'm being really honest. Uh, but I can do this. You know, I read Andrew's book and I've read other books as well. It's not like I've just read his book and then 
you know, just blindly followed him into the fire. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that you just pick one person and do whatever they say. Like I've read other books as well, which have backed up what Andrew has said in terms of why investing in low cost funds makes so much sense. But when you actually take the time to read a book like Andrew's and maybe maybe do a little bit more of investigating for yourself, like you might want to get a book about the Australian share market just so you understand the terminology, but you'll, you will see that it's not difficult. If I can do it, anybody can do it. You know, yes, it took a bit of time in the beginning. I have a fund with Vanguard and there were quite a few calls back and forth while I just made sure I understood everything in terms of the fund and the people on the phone were always helpful and very um, patient with me explaining all the maths because there are a few things that, you know, I really needed to get clear in my head to understand how the fees work because I don't pay a specific fee every time I put money into the fund, but I do pay a fee overall. They do have fees, but it's all sort of built into it. But again, I I just can't stress more clearly to you that you just have to actually put a bit of effort in in the beginning to learn about it and then the results are incredible. I mean, I'm currently speaking to a man who, you know, trots around the globe with his wife riding their bicycles and backpacking because he invested when he was younger. And sure, I'm starting later and everybody says, you know, it's time in the market, not timing the market. However, it's never too late to start because you just start when you start. I mean, when you start is exactly the right time to start, in my opinion. You might just not get as amazing results as you would if you started when you were 19. But hey, big deal. We, we do what we can. So I think this is maybe a good time to explain, Andrew, can you talk about what dollar cost averaging is? Because I put money, I do this, I put money into my fund every month. And I'd, I'd like it, I'd like if you could explain why, why we would do that. You know, because I, I don't save up a heap of money and then put a lump sum in every six months or once a year. I just continue to put in the same amount every month. Well, the longer we can keep our money in the market, generally the better. I mean, the statistical odds are that the longer the money has in terms of time frame to grow, the better off we're going to be. Dollar cost averaging means that you're investing a constant sum every month. And so it works well for somebody with a job. You have a regular income. You can set it up on autopilot often where you'll have a set amount that will just come directly from your bank into your investment. And what, what will happen with that, which is, which is kind of cool, is let's just assume it's, a, it's $100 a month and $100 a month is going in. And you have a, a fund like the one you have, which includes a diversified basket of index funds. And so Megan and I were talking and she owns a fund that has an Australian shares index and basically a global stock market index as well, which is a U.S. stock market index, international stock market index, and then what we call a fixed income index, which is just a bond index. So when Megan buys every month, when the share price rises, when the unit price rises for that index, 
that same $100 is able to buy slightly fewer units because the share price has risen. But then when the share price drops, that same $100 is able to buy slightly greater number of units of that index. And so the dollar cost averaging process allows you to pay a lower than average price over the time duration of your investment period. And also I heard something, and correct me if I'm wrong, that in general, when the share price is higher, the price for bonds is usually lower. And then when the price for bonds, sorry, when the price for shares is lower, the price for bonds is higher. Is that right? Yeah, and it's not always like a a direct correlation quite like that, but when share prices drop, so you can take what's happened with COVID-19, so globally, I think the market's down calendar year to date, something like 12%, 10%. Most bond prices have actually risen during the same time period. So I was just looking at the Australian shares bond index, and it, it was up, I think, calendar year to date, something like 6%, while the shares market has dropped. And when you're rebalancing your investment portfolio, and so you have something that actually does the rebalancing automatically which is great. So when the share prices rise at the end of the calendar year, your money is split, as you described to me, 70% into Australian and international stock market shares ETFs, shares indexes, and the remaining in a bond ETF, a bond index. So it's I'm calling it an ETF because sometimes they're used concurrently. They're same, the same type of product. It's basically an index. So with Megan, with your account, when the, stock, when the share prices rise, your fund company will automatically skim a little bit off the top and to put it into the bond prices, into the bond index. So often they're, they're inversely proportional in terms of one goes up and the other goes down. And so through the process of rebalancing, you're always being what Warren Buffett calls a little bit greedy when others are fearful and a little bit fearful when others are greedy. And Megan, I know you don't have to do any of that because the fund company just sets that up automatically. The one thing that we do know for sure is that when share prices drop hard, bond prices don't always rise, but they never drop like share prices do. So this gives us a wonderful opportunity at year's end, whether we're doing this manually or whether the fund company is doing this for us, to sell portions of the bond index to buy portions of the stock index and just simply bring us back to the same allocation that we started with. It has nothing to do with speculating. It's just, what is your allocation in the beginning? So many people would be 70% stock indexes. That's the riskier growth part. 30% bond indexes. That's the more stable part. And they rebalance those to make sure that that allocation is consistent year after year. So there's no speculating. There's no following the economy. I was saying I spend 10 minutes a year on my investment portfolio. Um, And my wife has an investment portfolio as well with Vanguard USA. And she has a fund very much like you. It's just, it's automatic. She spends zero minutes a year on her investment portfolio. So I'm playing the devil's advocate here a little bit, but I just wanted to talk to what's happened in the market recently. So the stock market has dropped. And Andrew, have you rushed out and sold all your shares now because the market has dropped? And of course, I know you haven't, but 
why why shouldn't we all be quickly rushing out now and selling all our shares because it, the market has dropped? It's kind of funny how people view stock market drops, and really they should be viewing stock market drops the same way they they view a sale at the supermarket. So when cans of beans go on special, if we're regular purchases of beans, we buy them all the time. They go on special. We should actually be loading up. We should be happy that the the cans of beans have gone on sale. The really weird thing about human psychology, as it relates to the stock market, is it it's almost like back to that supermarket analogy. It's almost like people saying, "Oh my God, the price of beans just dropped. I'm not buying beans this week. I'm not buying beans." And others might go, "Well, I'm not buying beans because." Well, maybe it'll go lower and I'll buy it then. You can't predict the price of beans and you can't predict the level of the stock market. But the one thing that we have to get into our heads is we have to rewire our thinking and we have to recognize that if we are regular purchasers, if we are dollar cost averagers, if we are people who consistently take portions of our income and put it into a portfolio of index funds, then we should actually celebrate when markets drop because we are able to buy an increasing number of units for those businesses that we are buying. And make no mistake, the biggest businesses in the world, despite what's happening right now with COVID-19, the, the, the General Electrics, the Apples of the world, the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons of the world, the Johnson Johnsons and the Coca-Colas of the world, their business profits, business profits now, will be significantly higher 10 years from now than they were last year. And so we are basically buying into their future earnings potential. And when we get a discount, such as what COVID-19 gave us, that's really only the only bit of sliver of, you know, of, of, of anything positive that's relating to this whole thing. Um, when we get a discount, that's a wonderful opportunity. Just keep doing what we're doing. Don't do anything different, but know that we're actually getting a better deal on the same things we were buying last year. We're getting a better deal on them today. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's something that you have to have a mindset shift to to really get that and be okay about when you see the share price going down, it's you don't need to panic. It's all right. Like my portfolio, the actual price of it, yes, it's dropped, but you know, I just put I just put my monthly amount in at the end of the month and you know, I've bought way more units than I normally do. So that was really exciting because now when it goes up, I I have more units. So yeah, I I hope that uh, that you listening, you can un- understand this this concept. So I also wanted to ask you about where do you think the common investor goes wrong and why do stocks get such a bad rap? That's funny. They, I think if, if I were in a game show and someone were to say to me, what, what nationality is most reluctant to buy shares? What nationality is absolutely in love with an asset class and it's not stock market shares? I would hammer that buzzer right away and I'd say Australians. They love the property market. They love the property market. Um, and the property market's great. I mean, you can borrow money to invest and you can end up getting uh, rental revenue from that. But what's so interesting is if you ask the average Australian on the street, hey, so let's say you could have bought a 
stock market index, an Australian stock market index in 1980, and you had all dividends reinvested, how would that have performed relative to the price of your, your parents' house in Sydney or Perth or Melbourne? And 100% of Australians, no, let's not do that. Let's say 97.22% of Australians would say the price, I'm very, very, <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very exact here. The <laughs> most Australians would say the price increase of that home in Melbourne over that 35 year period would destroy the Australian stock market. It's actually the opposite. But the average Aussie doesn't know this. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing. When you say uh, the stock market and its bad rap, I'm not sure if many of the people in the rest of the world really have that feeling so much about the stock market. The Australian share, the Australian property market has been one of the best performing property markets in the world. And so for good reason, Australians have really, really, really loved buying properties. But over the past 35 years, their share prices have actually also been among the best performing in the world as well. So they've been on par with share prices in the United States. I'll give you an idea. In 1980, if somebody had invested $100 in 1980 in Australian shares, it would be up 8,000% today. 8,000%. It's, it's mind boggling. Um, when we look at, here's a kind of a cool thing, the rate of return on everything. Uh, you can actually have a look at it, go online and read it the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. What they did was they looked at rates of return on different investment entities. And the Australian shares market, after inflation from 1980 to 2015, this is quite extraordinary, it's increased 906% after inflation. I mean, that's amazing. That's after inflation. So that's not just your house value increasing nine times. That's its its value increasing nine times after inflation. That's extraordinary. It's one of the reasons why Australians love property. I mean, 906% higher than inflation over 35 years. Australian shares, 1,750% higher than inflation over the same 35 years. Now, I'm not saying that investing in the stock market is better than investing in the property market. I'm not saying that at all because there are so many different factors at play here. One is you get to use leverage when you're buying into the property market. You have a renter who ends up paying off big portions of your mortgage. But what I am saying is that the Australian shares market or the global shares market is nowhere near as bad as many Australians perhaps think. Yeah. And look, I totally agree with you that owning your own home and buying property is definitely the Australian dream. And there are many mum um, and dad investors. I'm one of them myself when we buy properties to um, as investment properties. But I think one of the things that gets overlooked is the costs involved with managing a property. Mm. and the long-term cost of the upkeep of a property. And I think that's a really big factor that that does actually get overlooked. And the more that I learn about it, the more that I feel like I'm tending to swing towards the share market, becoming my primary focus. And that's just from 
actually learned experience. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with buying property and I certainly do not regret buying the properties that we have because I've learned so much from that. But I also think that I I haven't switched off. I'm not continuing to not keep learning. And the more that I do in terms of speaking to people like you and investing in the share market and investing in property, the more I learn from that experience and then just make new decisions. But I don't think that you can go too wrong as long as you just start taking action and actually make a start. I mean, don't just rush out and invest in anything, but you learn from your experiences. You know, that's how else can you do that? All right, so moving forward, we're kind of getting into wrapping up here, but I do have a few more questions that I want to ask you, Andrew. I actually don't know this, but whether you've got kids or not, but if you do have kids, I'm interested to know what do you teach them about money? And if you don't have children, what would you teach these hypothetical children of yours about money? What would you want them to, to learn and know as they grow up? That's such a great question. So my wife and I ended up marrying late. And so we tried to have children, but we're unable to. But we recognize that, hey, there can be life without kids as well. So we're enjoying that. The, the idea with children is something that when I give these talks around the world, there's typically one that I give for parents um, when it comes to their children and how their children should think about money. One is to have your children working for money from a really early time period. It's to understand that money doesn't grow in trees and to wean them off the bank of mom and dad as early as possible. That when you think, Megan, of your, your friends who are financial train wrecks, I'm going to guess that many of them are still on the umbilical cord or they were perhaps on the umbilical cord of mom and dad a little too long. And it's kind of like you know a parent saying, well, I'm going to do these push-ups for you so that I get strong, um, so that I can help you. I'll do push-ups so that you can get strong. Oh, no, no, no. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's, I've met many parents too, wealthier parents who say, well, I, I want to put $100,000 into a portfolio of index funds for my child so that my child can end up with a far cushier life. And wow, imagine how that money could compound. I've worked really hard. I want my child to have a much easier life. It doesn't work like that. Because what, what typically happens is, one, is there's the Chinese proverb that wealth doesn't pass three generations. When you look at the Forbes list of, of, of richest Americans or richest people in the world, most of them are either first or second generationally rich. This concept that money gets passed down from generation to generation to generation is, is mostly a myth. It's super, super rare, actually, for wealth to pass more than the fourth generation. The first generation builds the wealth. The second generation typically maintains that wealth. And the third generation typically squanders that wealth. And you may be listening to this and saying, well, it doesn't relate to me because I'm not that first generation of rich. No, it absolutely does. When we ask ourselves, well, what is it that the rich do wrong? What do they do wrong? They give too much. They enable their children. They don't allow their children to build their own financial muscles to get their own skin in the game and to get it going early. So for my nieces and nephews, I got them into portfolios of index funds with their own money. And it was really, really important. I wasn't going to give them any money. I gave them a little bit of money towards their education when they were born. And that was it. So what they do is they all have, they have my, I'm just thinking too of my sister's boys. They have portfolios of index funds that they've had since they were really small. 
and I helped them set it up and their money would go into those over time. And it's really cool to see how proud they are of it. They can see how much it's grown. They understand that there will be years when it rises and then years when it drops. So to, to have them understanding that concept at 12 and 13 and 14 gives them an emotional advantage that most 40 year olds don't have. To have that understanding that, you know, this will go up and down over time, but over lengthy periods, it's going to go up more often than it will drop. So statistically speaking, the stock market rises about 66% of calendar years, which means it could rise five years in a row and then have two years where it doesn't make money. Or it could go up two years or up three years, down one year, up three, down one. It's, there's no pattern to it whatsoever. So uh, that's my response to, the, to having children and to having them. I love that so much because it's so empowering. And it's funny because you see these sensationalized headlines of, you know, some wealthy billionaire not leaving an inheritance to their children. You think, oh, but then when you put it in the context of how you've just explained it, yeah, it's because it's completely disempowering them yes. to be able yeah. to make it themselves and know how to do that. We feel pride in accomplishing the things that we accomplish in life. and we feel more pride when it's a little bit difficult. So if you want to take that away from your child, make everything easy for them. And unfortunately, all you're going to be doing is you're going to be contributing to low future self-esteem. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of really, really wealthy families, their, their children end up in therapy with serious problems. They just don't feel good about who they are as people. Yeah. Yeah, I totally see it. And it's really easy as a parent to, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I have two young girls, three and five. And sometimes I find myself going to just help them because it's one, it's quicker. You know, it's much easier for me to help my three-year-old get yeah. her clothes on, you know, when she's struggling trying to do something. However, I mean, occasionally I do when it's necessary, but for the most part, my girls are very independent. And when we, you know, when I drop them off, um, my three-year-old at preschool, you know, the teachers are all like, wow, she's really independent. She just does everything herself. And I think, yeah, because <laughs> we don't do it all for her. She's, <laughs> she's got to work it out. And, you know, so often they're like, mom, help me with this puzzle. And it's like, no, no, <laughs> you'll figure it out. You'll problem solve. Like, how can you do it yourself? Or how can you build that cubby with the pillows and the couch? No, work it out, you know, and they do, which is so amazing and seeing it because I was a, worked as a primary school teacher and you would understand this as, as well, but I think you were high school. Um, is that correct? Right. High school yeah. and middle school. Yeah. Yeah. But the primary school kids so often, they really, um, you know, they can kind of be a bit, uh, what's the word? Like have a bit of a tantrum at first when you leave them to work it out themselves. They're like, oh, this is so hard. And But then when you walk away, then that you could hear these little grunts and these frustration noises, but suddenly they come to you like a sunbeam when they have worked it out how to do it themselves. It yes. is incredible to see but as a parent it's actually much harder to do that because you have to listen to that screaming and frustration mm -hmm. and 
you know, sometimes it's easier just to go, no, 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 I don't want to listen to that. Let's just do it for them. But yeah, I would encourage, I'm totally in agreement with you that, yeah, leave the kids to do it. Let them work it out because they (laughs) will become problem solvers of the future and be empowered to make decisions for their own life and then actually create it, what they want to do. I, yeah, agree 100%. All right, so coming to our conclusion, you sent me when we were emailing, you sent me a great article that you wrote about female investors. In, in the article, you say that females make better investors. So who's the main investor in your household, Andrew? (laughs) And why do you think? Have you ever read that book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? Uh, I actually haven't, but I I know about it. It was was definitely uh, around in our household when I was younger. (laughs) I'm pretty sure my mom read it. I I read that book and I didn't identify with the man at all. I was more like the woman from Venus. And I know that's there was a great book that was written recently too called Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl. And so let me tell you, while this is the greatest compliment a man could ever have. So, first of all, can I give the backstory to this? Yeah, please. Okay, so here I am, I'm giving these financial talks around the world. And and I've been doing that a long time. I, I really did start that as soon as I started working internationally, I started giving these talks first at the school I was working at and then another school in Singapore would invite me and then a school in Thailand. So I'd be giving them for years and I'd say, okay, this is really simple. All you need to do is build a portfolio of index funds. And I'd show people exactly what to buy. And I said, don't day trade. Don't do the Bitcoin thing. Don't go with actively managed funds and whatever you do, do not speculate one bit. Just stay the course, stay the course. So invariably, I'd find my way back to some of these same schools. And I'd sometimes end up sitting down with people that I'd spoken to six, seven, eight years before. And the topic would come up and I'd ask, well, so, you know, how is it going? Have you been able to stick to the plan? And then there'd be these really sheepish looks. And I found that without fail, if it was a man and woman partnership I was talking to, Without fail, the one that sabotaged the plan and screwed everything up was 10 times out of 10, the man. The man. And so financial literacy, I I find this so interesting. So I started to research this. I thought, this is anecdotal. It's one guy, me, but I'm talking to a lot of people. I mean, I'm going to be finding that, shoot, 100 times out of 100 when I'm finding that somebody has imploded the investment account or done something stupid, it's been the man in the relationship. And the woman's jabbing him and saying, I told you not to do that, but you did it. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to start to like play counselor here to keep these two from scrapping. Here's the fascinating thing. The, I started reading about this and finding that when we give men and women a financial literacy test, just in terms of what they know, what their knowledge is in the shares market, for example, men are far more interested in it typically. And so they do exhibit higher levels of knowledge. So when we give them tests, it doesn't matter whether we give that test in Australia or the UK or Canada or the United States. Typically, in most cases, men typically know more about finances than women. They just find more of an interest in it. However, this is the tail of the tape right here. I love this part. 
when we actually look at investment portfolio accounts in it doesn't matter what country we're looking at here whether it's canada or whether it's the united states we find that women outperform men by up to three and a half percent per year now when i showed you how much a two percent per year impacts an investment portfolio imagine how three and a half percent impacts an investment portfolio that's the difference between men and women and a lot of men have a really hard time accepting that and i think it has to do with men with the male ego men often think they know things they don't know and i do think it's the level of testosterone when i've been able to show the strategy to single women or to women couples they nail it they nail it they freaking nail it month after month year after year show them how to do it they don't start gambling typically i mean obviously there are going to be some that do but from my experience they don't start typically gambling with bitcoin or some brand new uh, uh initial public offering on some share or i'm going to dabble with a little bit of hedge fund money or i'm going to try and speculate men speculate men were trying to figure out what's going to happen with the economy what's going to happen with their investment portfolio men have made me bald negan men have freaking made me bald i'm bald so if you haven't seen me you don't see my picture i have no hair it's men that have done that but women man so if you're in a relationship with a man i don't care how much the man knows or says he knows he might know loads more than you you're the woman in the relationship here's the deal at the very least at the very least you have to be 50 percent involved at best you take the reins you take the reins sure read that book millionaire teacher or any other book there are loads of books that have this still the same thing so i just i was just the conduit for nobel prize winning research that's all i did and i wrote millionaire teacher and i tried to make it simple but take the reins if at all possible away from the man and you're going to have a much more profitable future Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, yeah, women, that's right. See, we can do it and we can do it better than the men. Just final, my final question, Andrew, because I always end with this. Is there some sort of habit or ritual or, or just tip that you've got? I mean, you probably just gave it to us um, that you do with your money that we can end with something, a, a takeaway. Yeah, the simplest of all, it doesn't matter how well your investments grow if you're not saving enough money. And so the idea of saving and the easiest way to encourage saving is to just track what you spend. There are loads of people who say, oh, get a budget. Budgets are super boring and I don't have the discipline for a budget. Like I could never do it. I'd go crazy after a while setting up my, my budget. But what I typically do is I will figure out, um, my wife and I have been tracking our money forever. So we used to do it with pen and paper. Now we do it with like an app on our phone. You could use like Mint or Good Budget, any kind of portfolio, tra uh, sorry, any kind of savings tracker. And all we do is we write in what we spend. That's it. So it does take perhaps, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds out of each day. So <laughs> I come from the supermarket and I notice I've spent $120 on groceries. I enter the date, $120 groceries, and it goes into that little pie category. And what we'll do at the beginning of each year is Kelly and I will determine how much we want to save. And the rest is just gravy. We make sure we save that amount. So we put that amount aside as our goal. As soon as our monthly check comes, that money is either allotted towards that. Right now, it's not as consistent because I don't have a regular salary as we're floating around. But when we were working full time, that money, we would remove that at the beginning of the month so that we would never see it. 
Um, but by tracking what you spend, what will happen is automatically you'll end up spending less on the silly things because you become accountable for it. You become your own accountability measurement. You start seeing how much you're spending at Starbucks on coffees because you can see it like it's a category. And you're like, oh my God, I had no idea I was spending that much. And what will happen is without anyone telling you to, you'll start feeling like ashamed to continue to enter that coffee amount into the tracker. So you'll spend less on coffees. You'll end up spending less overall. So it's much like diets. I love seeing these studies on diets. Weight Watchers did this really cool one to see what single variable allowed people to lose weight most effectively. And it wasn't it wasn't exercise and it wasn't diet. Do you know what it was? I can guess from what you've just said. It was just tracking what you eat, just putting it on a tracker. So that's my that's the takeaway. That's the most important part. It will allow you to save more money. Well, that is a really fantastic tip to end on. So Andrew, thank you so much for giving us this valuable time today to let me interview you. I am absolutely honored and thrilled to have you on the show. Your book has had an incredible impact on my life and genuinely thank you for being here today and sharing your wisdom with all the people who are going to be listening to this episode. Thank you. My pleasure, Megan. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it, ladies. I am thrilled to have been able to share this interview with you. If you haven't already, you must go out and get his book straight away. It is, of course, available from my website under the book club tab and at all good retailers. Andrew has a knack for distilling complex concepts into relatable and easy to understand format. I hope you got as much out of this interview as I did. Of course, I will put all the links in the show notes to where we can find Andrew, his website. He also has a really fantastic YouTube channel that mentions, um, that goes over some of the topics that we've talked about today in more detail. So I'll put a link to that as well. Just a reminder that book club is next Tuesday, the 30th of June at 8.30 p.m. on the Money Mindful Facebook page. Can't wait to see you there and discuss everything that we have learnt today and from the book. As always, if you want to stay in touch between episodes, join the Money Mindful mailing list or contact me, uh, connect with me on Facebook or Instagram. The handle is at Money Mindful Podcast. Until next time, have a beautiful week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Money Mindful Podcast. For more info, visit moneymindful.com.au. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe. And remember, the information in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account your personal circumstances or goals. Please seek professional advice for your own financial needs. Remember to have fun along the way.